0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about whether it's possible to weigh the human soul. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So what is the human soul? Is it something that could ever be scientifically detected? In 1901, an American physician named Duncan McDougall decided to try and find out. He shocked many people, including fellow scientists, when he published his results, which showed a measurable loss of something at the moment of death. Had McDougall detected the departure of the human soul? Was his interpretation of his findings correct? And what have other researchers found? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say to begin?
1: This one is going to be really, really weird. Easily one of the weirdest things that we've ever covered and maybe the weirdest. And no, it's not an April Fool's episode. Also, during one segment today, we'll be speaking with John G. Kruth, the executive director of the Rhine Research Center, who has done research pertaining to our topic today.
0: So who's the main figure in our mystery?
1: His name is Dr. Duncan MacDougall, and he was a medical doctor from Haverhill, Massachusetts. He was born in the 1800s and died in the 20th century, and he did a fascinating series of experiments starting in 1901, the first year of the 20th century. He was very interested in the idea of the soul, and he proceeded to develop a fascinating theory about it. The first plank of his view was reasoning his way to the conclusion that if it exists, the soul must be a space-filling substance, something that fills space. And he argued for that conclusion this way, but, spoiler warning, if what he says doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. It doesn't make sense to me either. I I don't think the argument he makes is a good one, but here's what he said.
0: If personal continuity after the event of bodily death is a fact, if these psychic or mental functions continue to exist as a separate individuality or personality after the death of brain and body, then such personality can only exit as a space occupying body unless the relations between space objective and space notions in our consciousness, established in our consciousness by heredity and her experience, are entirely webbed out at death and a new set of relations between space and consciousness suddenly established in the continuing personality. This would be an unimaginable breach in the continuity of nature. It is unthinkable that personality and consciousness, continuing personal identity, should exist, and have being, and yet not occupy space. It is impossible to represent in thought that which is not space-occupying as having personality, for that would be equivalent to thinking that nothing had become or was something, that emptiness had personality, that space itself was more than space, all of which are contradictions and absurd. In essence, his argument is that he can't imagine
1: a soul that's not a space-filling substance. Well, maybe he can't, but I can, and so I don't think this is a good argument. And many, many theologians also can imagine a soul that is not a space-filling substance. In fact, it's the standard view in the history of Christian thought that the soul and other spirits are not extended in space. They don't fill it. But Let's grant him the idea that the soul is a space-filling substance for the sake of argument. McDougall then moves on to the second stage of his argument.
0: According to the latest conception of science, substance, or space-occupying material, is divisible into that which is gravitative, solids, liquids, gases, all having weight, and the ether, which is non-gravitative.
1: Here, he's arguing that if the soul is a space occupying substance, it must either be made of matter that is subject to gravity, in which case it would have weight, or it's made of ether.
0: The idea of ether may not be familiar to many listeners, except as a gas that puts you to sleep. Is that what McDougall's talking about?
1: Yeah, the sleeping gas is not the kind of ether he's discussing. Uh, Instead, he's referring to what was often called the luminiferous or light-bearing ether. In his day, scientists had had evidence for quite some time that light had wave-like properties, but you generally need a medium for a wave to propagate. Uh, Waves in water don't propagate without water, and sound waves in the air don't propagate without air. So, they reasoned that since light propagates to us from the stars, all of space must be filled with a medium that allows light waves to propagate to the earth, and they called this material the light-bearing or luminiferous ether. Today, standard physics doesn't accept the idea that this ether exists, but in McDougall's day, it was a standard opinion. And so MacDougall reasoned that if the soul is a space-filling substance, it must either be made of matter that is subject to gravity or ether, which is not subject to gravity because that was one of its properties. Once again, he had a hard time imagining that it could be made of ether, so he ended up concluding that it's probably made of matter and has weight. So he said to himself, Let's science! Let's get some sick people and weigh them as they die to see if their weight changes. Weighing people as they die? How did he go about doing that? He basically got a big scale, big enough that you could put uh, the sick person and his bed on top of it and weigh them together. This was the kind of scale that used sliding balances. Um, When I was growing up, you'd see this kind of scale, or at least a version of it, in doctor's offices all the time, though... I don't know if they use them as much today. Basically, this type of scale has a balance bar that fits into a little slot. And when you step on the scale, the balance bar shoots up and goes clunk at the top of the slot. Then the doctor or nurse slides the weighted balances along the bar to bring it back down into balance. And from how they move the sliding weights, they can read off how much you weigh. Today, we have accurate home scales and we do a lot of telemedicine. So I just weigh myself and tell my doctor the reading, and I don't know if she has one of those sliding balance scales in her office or not. I've never really noticed. In any event, McDougal got a really big scale, big enough that you could put a whole bed on it, and it was the kind that had a balance bar with an upper and lower limit, so the bar would go clunk when it hit the top or the bottom limit.
0: Wouldn't people find it creepy to be weighed at the moment of their death? Many
1: people would find it creepy, but he obtained informed consent, so the patients he used knew what would be happening, and they agreed to it. He also picked patients who were near death already, and specifically, he picked ones that had diseases that didn't make them move or thrash around a lot, so that the movements wouldn't interfere, any movements they would make wouldn't interfere with the scale. Specifically, he got patients who had what they then called consumption. Today, we call it tuberculosis, and it's a bacterial infection of the lungs. So if you hear him say consumption, just think tuberculosis. We're fortunate that tuberculosis is rare today, and we have antibiotics to treat it, though we do have to watch out for antibiotic-resistant forms of the bacteria that cause it. But back when McDougall did his experiment, they didn't have antibiotics, and consumption was a leading cause of death. McDougall also used one patient who was in a diabetic coma, and the situation with diabetes was also different back then. Today, diabetes is very common due to the bad dietary advice the government has been giving under the influence of big food. But we have good treatments for it today, although some of the treatments can actually harm the patient, like giving insulin to a type 2 diabetic when there are other safer ways to treat them. Now, notice I'm not recommending any specific, specific treatment here, so I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just saying that if you're a type 2 diabetic and you're on insulin, there are likely better alternatives for you. Insulin can damage your body when it's given in this way. So do some research and check with your doctor. And as a starting point for your research, see the work of Dr. Jason Fung, F-U-N-G. He has videos on YouTube you can watch, and he has written a bunch of books. In any event, back when McDougall did his experiment, diabetes was much less common, but much more dangerous because they didn't have good ways to reverse it. And he once he had his patients then, Dr. McDougall and his partner, Dr. Sproul,
0: uh, sought to make them as comfortable as possible as they passed. What did McDougall and Sproul find when they did their first experiment? He describes it this way. My first subject was a man dying of tuberculosis. It seemed to me best to select a patient dying with a disease that produces great exhaustion, the death occurring with little or no muscular movement, because in such a case the beam could be kept more perfectly at balance and any loss occurring readily noted. The patient was under observation for 3 hours and 40 minutes before death, lying on a bed arranged on a light framework built upon very delicately balanced platform beam scales. The patient's comfort was looked after in every way, although he was practically moribund when placed upon the bed. He lost weight slowly at the rate of one ounce per hour due to evaporation of moisture and respiration and evaporation of sweat.
1: And this is something that a lot of people don't realize, but we are constantly losing weight throughout the day when we exhale moisture or when our sweat evaporates. Back when I was aggressively seeking to lose weight, I'd weigh myself multiple times a day knowing that the readings that I got first thing in the morning would be two pounds lower later in the day due to the loss of moisture or water weight. McDougall knew this happened too, so he took account of it. Loss of weight in the hours before death could be understood as loss of moisture, so what he was interested in was a sudden loss of weight in connection with the moment of death.
0: During all three hours and 40 minutes, I kept the beam end slightly above balance near the upper limiting bar in order to make the test more decisive if it should come. At the end of three hours and 40 minutes, he expired and suddenly, coincident with death, the beam end dropped with an audible stroke, hitting against the lower limiting bar and remaining there with no rebound. The loss was ascertained to be three-fourths of an ounce. Three-quarters of an ounce is 21.3 grams
1: in metric, and this became a famous number. You'll hear a lot of people say that McDougall found that the sole weighs 21 grams, or about as much as a slice of bread, although it would be a small slice. The question would be, what explained this loss of weight? Could it be the departure of the soul, or could it be something
0: else? This loss of weight could not be due to evaporation of respiratory moisture and sweat, because that had already been determined to go on, in his case, at the rate of one sixtieth 60th of an ounce per minute, whereas this loss was sudden and large, 3 fourths of an ounce in a few seconds. There remained but one more channel of loss to explore the expiration of all but the residual air in the lungs. Getting upon the bed myself, my colleague put the beam at actual balance. Inspiration and expiration of air, as forcibly as possible by me, had no effect upon the beam. My colleague got upon the bed and I placed the beam at balance. Forcible inspiration and expiration of air on his part had no effect. In this case, we certainly have an inexplicable loss of weight of three-fourths of an ounce is it the sole substance? How other shall we explain it? To get more data, MacDougall then went on to repeat the
1: experiments with similar results.
0: My second patient was a man moribund from tuberculosis. He was on the bed about four hours and fifteen minutes under observation before death. The first four hours he lost weight at the rate of three-fourths of an ounce per hour. He had much slower respiration than the first case, which accounted for the difference in loss of weight from evaporation of perspiration and respiratory moisture. The last 15 minutes he had ceased to breathe, but his facial muscles still moved convulsively, and then, coinciding with the last movement of the facial muscles, the beam dropped. The weight lost was found to be half an ounce. Then my colleague listened to the heart and found it stopped. I tried again, and the loss was one ounce and a half and 50 grains.
1: So this guy lost weight in two stages. First, when his facial muscles stopped moving, he was found to have lost half an ounce, or 14.2 grams in metric. But they weren't sure that he was dead, so 18 minutes later they weighed him again, and he had lost one and a half ounces and 50 grains, or a total of 45.8 grams.
0: In the 18 minutes that lapsed between the time he ceased breathing until we were certain of death, there was a weight loss of one and a half ounces and 50 grains compared with a loss of 3 ounces during a period of 4 hours, during which time the ordinary channels of loss were at work. This patient was of a totally different temperament from the first. His death was very gradual, so that we had great doubts from the ordinary evidence to say just what moment he died. But
1: they had observed a sudden drop of 14.2 grams, and despite the uncertainty about when the moment of death occurred, they reset the scale and continued watching it.
0: The beam at the end of 18 minutes of doubt was placed again with the end in slight contact with the upper bar and watched for 40 minutes, but no further loss took place. This revealed that the patient was not only really dead, but really most
1: sincerely dead. And the evidence they had was that he lost 14.2 grams of weight at the approximate moment of death and 45.8 Grams by 18 minutes after the estimated time of death.
0: My third case, a man dying of tuberculosis, showed a weight of half an ounce lost coincident with death, and an additional loss of one ounce a few minutes later.
1: Again, we have a two-stage weight loss. First, at the moment of death, he's lost half an ounce or 14.2 grams. Then, a few minutes later, he's also lost one and a half ounces exactly, or 42.5 grams total.
0: In the fourth case, a woman dying of diabetic coma. Unfortunately, our scales were not finally adjusted, and there was a good deal of interference by people opposed to our work. And although at death the beam sunk so that it required from three-eighths to one-half an ounce to bring it back to the point preceding death, yet I regard this test as of no value. It's interesting that McDougall says that there was a good deal of interference
1: by people opposed to our work. He doesn't say why these people were opposed or what they did, but I can imagine both religious and secular people not wanting these experiments to go forward, although they'd have different motives. Unfortunately, they were able to materially interfere with his work in this case, so that although he did measure a weight loss of between three-eighths and one-half of an ounce, or between 10.6 and 14.2 grams, he considered this data spoiled and did not want it considered.
0: My fifth case, a man dying of tuberculosis, showed a distinct drop in the beam requiring about three-eighths of an ounce which could not be accounted for. This occurred exactly simultaneously with death, but peculiarly on bringing the beam up again with weights and later removing them, the beam did not sink back to stay for fully fifteen minutes. It was impossible to account for the three-eighths of an ounce drop. It was so sudden and distinct the beam hitting the lower bar with as great a noise as in the first case. Our scales in the case were very sensitively balanced. So this time,
1: like the first time, the change in weight was associated with the moment of death, and it was so audible, it was so sudden that they heard an audible clunk when the beam hit the bottom limiter, and the total weight loss was 3 eighths of an ounce, or 10.6 grams.
0: My sixth and last case was not a fair test. The patient died almost within five minutes after being placed upon the bed and died while I was adjusting the beam. In my communication to Dr. Hodgson, I note that I have said there was no loss of weight. It should have been added that there was no loss of weight that we were justified in recording. My notes taken at the time of experiment show a loss of one and a half ounces, but in addition, it should have been said the experiment was so hurried, jarring of the scales had not wholly ceased, and the apparent weight loss, one and a half ounces, might have been due to accidental shifting of the sliding weight on that beam. This could not have been true of the other tests. No one of them was done hurriedly. My sixth case I regard as one of no value from this cause. So this time he got a
1: reading of a loss of one and a half ounces or 42.5 grams, but he didn't want this result considered because the patient died so fast and he was still adjusting the sliding weight and it could have accidentally shifted. To my mind, this is a real mark in McDougall's favor as a scientist. People in the skeptical community like to dump on McDougall and portray him and his experiments as ridiculous because it doesn't fit their narrative. For example, you can see that if you read Wikipedia's page on the experiment. But the fact that McDougal discounted two of his six results, even though they were consistent with his other findings because of problems with the test run, shows that he was trying to be careful and did not want his data spoiled, even when the possible spoiled data agreed with the good data. So that's a mark in his favor. How would you summarize the results he got? McDougall got four results that he was comfortable with. One patient lost 21.3 grams upon death. Uh, Patient two lost 14.2 grams immediately and within a few minutes had lost a total of 45.8 grams. Patient three also lost 14.2 grams immediately and 42.5 grams within a few minutes, and patient 5 lost 10.6 grams. In addition, if we look at the two trials that McDougall didn't count, patient 4 lost between 10.6 and 14.2 grams, and patient 6 lost 42.5 grams. In each case, there was a weight loss associated with the moment of death and the amount ranged between 10.6 grams on the low side and 45.8 grams on the high side. How might you account for that range of values? Getting a range of values when taking measurements can be explained in more than one way. Uh, The difference can be due to something the experimenter did differently, or it can be due to a difference in the mechanism being used to do the measurement or it can be due to a difference in the environmental conditions affecting the experimenter and the mechanism, or it can be due to a difference in the thing that's being measured. One practical way of dealing with differing results is to average them and assume that the true value is near the average, which can be understood either as the mean, the mode, or the median of the reported results. All three of those mean, mode, and median are different ways of reckoning the average value. Another way is to try to refine the results by rejecting some, such as rejecting the outliers, the highest and lowest values, or by rejecting runs that you don't have full confidence in, which is what McDougall was doing in his paper. If you average all six of his runs, the average mean value of the initial weight loss, right at the moment of death, was 19.2 grams. And if you include the runs where there was some additional loss within a few minutes, the average mean value is 29.2 grams, both of which are close to the 21 grams figure that you often hear quoted, although that really was just the result he got on his first run. On the other hand, if you discount the uh, results of patients four and six, as McDougall recommended, The average mean value of initial weight loss is 15 grams, and the average mean value of total weight loss after a few minutes is 30 grams. All of these results, however they're measured, are within an order of magnitude. And in fact, they're within a multiple of 4.3, which is within the kind of results you often encounter in science.
0: Does the soul
1: need to have a single set weight? No, not at all. Uh, People's bodies have different weights, and if it turns out that souls have weight, they might have different weight values too. Maybe some people's souls are heftier than others. Maybe you need a larger soul to run a larger body, or maybe holier souls weigh more, or maybe sinful souls weigh more, or maybe some other factor affects the weight of the soul. But the bottom line is that this is a realm where we really don't know very much. And so if souls have weight, we can't insist that they should all have the same weight.
0: In episode 203, we talked about the possibility that animals have an afterlife. And you concluded that we have at least some evidence that at least some animals may However, a popular idea in our culture is that animals don't have souls, or at least they don't have the kinds of souls that can survive death. Did McDougall ever run this kind of experiment on animals? He did. He also ran it on dogs. The same experiments were carried out on 15 dogs, surrounded by every precaution to obtain accuracy, and the results were uniformly negative, no loss of weight at death. The dogs experimented on weighed between 15 and 70 pounds, and the scales with the total weight upon them were sensitive to one-sixteenth of an ounce. The tests on dogs were vitiated by the use of two drugs administered to secure the necessary quiet and freedom from struggle so necessary to keep the beam at balance. The ideal tests on dogs would be obtained in those dying from some disease that rendered them much exhausted and incapable of struggle. It was not my fortune to get dogs dying from such sickness.
1: And that has led to some criticism. The fact he says that he couldn't get dogs who were dying of a sickness that would keep them quiet has led to the inference that he must have gotten healthy dogs and then poisoned them, possibly with the same drugs that he used to keep them quiet when he placed them on the scale. But there are some problems with this criticism. I mean first, he doesn't actually say that he poisoned the dogs he He may seem to imply it, but you know hypothetically he might have gotten dogs that were sick and dying, just not of the same kind of diseases that would keep them from moving and trying to get off the scale. But second, and more fundamentally, they're just animals being used in in an experiment, and lab animals die all the time, so, you know, get over it. Um... Third, he probably got them from a dog pound, and dogs who go there are usually put to sleep, so they would have died anyway. And fourth, he gave them drugs to sedate them, and so whatever the cause of death, it was a peaceful death that was free from suffering, so he didn't treat them inhumanely. But the takeaway is that he didn't get any weight loss at the moment of death from the dogs at least within the sensitivity of the scale he was using, which was 1 16th of an ounce or 1.8 grams. So perhaps dogs have souls that weigh less than 1.8 grams, and he could, just couldn't detect them.
0: In science, it's important that the results of an experiment be replicated by others. Have others tried to replicate McDougal's results? Yes, though not with human beings. Instead,
1: they've tried to replicate them using animals, Duncan McDougall published his results in the April 1907 issue of American Medicine and simultaneously in the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. This article inspired a high school physics teacher and a physiography professor from Los Angeles named H. Laverne Twining to run a similar set of experiments on mice. And since mice are so small... Professor Twining used an extraordinarily sensitive scale that could measure a hundredth of a microgram. According to the June 16th, 1907 edition of the Los Angeles Herald,
0: In the first test, the mouse was placed in a glass retort. The retort was then placed on the scales and exactly balanced to a hundredth part of a milligram. Next, a few lumps of potassium cyanide were placed on the scale pan, which held the retort, and the scales were rebalanced. When all was ready, the potassium cyanide was picked up with forceps and placed in the retort with the mouse. A few short struggles and the mouse made his final kick. Immediately, the lever swung considerably, indicating a loss. From the time of the first movement of the lever till it recorded the greatest amount of loss, five seconds on the stopwatch were noted. The scales were then rebalanced, taking four milligrams to replace the weight lost. Several other mice were treated in the same way, and in every case, there was a loss of varying between one to four milligrams. The question was how to
1: explain this loss, and after considering various options, Twining formed the hypothesis that it was due to loss of moisture. Consequently,
0: experiment two consisted of putting a mouse in an hermetically sealed test tube. This was done by procuring a long, narrow test tube one half an inch in diameter, and melting the glass at the open end, thereby sealing the tube, making it impossible for any air to be taken into the inside, and also impossible for any moisture or air to be given up from the inside. The tube was then balanced on the scales to a one-hundredth of a milligram. The mouse lived for three minutes in the tube before he suffocated. No loss of weight was indicated, showing that the weight lost in experiment one was due to the giving up of a form of matter that could not penetrate glass. Several similar experiments were tried with the same result. The fact that the weight did not
1: change when the mouse was sealed in a test tube was consistent with Twining's hypothesis that the previously observed weight loss was due to a release of moisture at death. However, it was also consistent with the hypothesis where matter just didn't penetrate the sealed glass. And if mouse soles were made of ordinary matter, then what Twining had done was not build a mouse trap, but a mouse soul trap. And the soul was still inside the tube. So this was not inconsistent with McDougall's results. And the fact he got weight loss when the mice weren't sealed in a tube was also consistent with McDougall's results. Then nearly a hundred years later a physicist named Louis Hollander tried a replication and published the results in the year two thousand and one in the journal of scientific exploration here is the abstract of that article
0: twelve animals one ram seven ewes three lambs and one goat were studied at the moment of death an unexplained weight gain transient of eighteen to seven hundred eighty grams for one to six seconds was observed with seven adult sheep but not with the lambs or goat. The transients occurred in a quiet time at the moment of death when all breathing and movement had ceased. These transient gains are anomalous in that there is no compensating weight loss as required by Newton's third law. There was no permanent weight change at death. Dynamic weight measurements may present a fruitful area of investigation.
1: So, surprisingly, the animals temporarily gained weight when they died, though their weights returned to normal within five seconds. The temporary weight gain was quite surprising because it seemed to violate Newton's third law of motion, which is that for every action, there must be an equal and opposite reaction. We won't go into the paper in detail, but we'll have a link so that you can read it for yourself, and we'll also have a link to a response by Masayoshi Ishida in which he critically evaluated Hollander's paper and pointed out some problems with it, though Ishida acknowledged that mysteries remain about the surprising results.
0: How could you explain weight gain at the moment of death? Hollander ended up suggesting
1: two explanations, both of them naturalistic. First, he suggested it could be a problem with the weighing equipment, and second, he suggested that there might be a physiological explanation, though he didn't elaborate on what it might be.
0: Is there a way you could explain the results in terms of a soul or something else that's paranormal?
1: Well, if souls control bodies, it's possible that they might have a psychokinetic effect on a living body that ends up lightening it a bit when the body is alive. Then when the soul leaves at death, this psychokinetic influence stops and the body starts registering its true weight, which is slightly heavier. You could even square that with McDougall's results if you proposed that human souls have the same psychokinetic effect on human bodies, but that the human soul is so much heavier than a sheep soul that when the human soul leaves, it results in a net loss of weight. So maybe in the case of humans, the psychokinetic effect shuts off, causing a small weight gain, but that's offset by an even greater loss of weight, uh, caused by the departure of the human soul. And the same thing could be true in the case of the animals that um that uh that Hollander studied. Maybe they have a psychokinetic effect where they're holding their bodies up a little bit so they weigh less during life. Then when they die, they that psychokinetic effect shuts off, their bodies jump a little bit in weight, and then when their soul leaves their weight goes back down again. Um, however, because Hollander's weight gain is so unexpected, you know, we'd want to see if his results could be replicated.
0: Are you aware of anyone who's attempted to replicate them? Yes, I
1: am, uh, though with a variation. When I mentioned I was doing this episode to John G. Kruth, the executive director of the Rhine Research Center that was founded by parapsychologist J.B. Rhine, he mentioned to me that he had done some research in this area. It wasn't on dying people or animals. Instead, it was done on people who have out-of-body experiences, or OBEs, which we will be talking about in a future episode of Mysterious World. So I asked John if he'd come on the program and tell us about his experiments, and here's my interview segment with him. John G. Kruth is the Executive Director of the Rhine Research Center and the Founder and Education Director of the Rhine Education Center. He's been a member of the Rhine Research Team since 2009, and is currently working on a number of research projects related to macro and micro-psychokinesis, healing methodologies and their effects, bioenergy and other factors that correlate with psi experiences, applications and evaluation of remote viewing, and general extrasensory perception protocols and experimental methods. His background in technology has led him to provide the Rhine with the tools necessary to become a more global online institution that maintains a web presence, hosts an archive of the Journal of Parapsychology Online, presents online educational events, sponsors the Ryan Education Center, and maintains a media library of talks by speakers who have come to the Rhine since 2011. John G. Kruth, welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. (laughs) Thanks, Jimmy. It's good
2: to see you today.
1: So um, you were contacted a number of years ago with the suggestion that you do some research that was similar to the work of Duncan McDougall. Who contacted you and what did they propose?
2: Well, it, it was about nine years ago that I got a call from this man named Jerry Concer, who is the president of the Psycho Research Foundation, the PRF. Psycho Research Foundation used to be in Durham and uh they've now moved and they're they're more virtual now but jerry called me and said you know i'm wondering if we can do an experiment to weigh the soul and i was like i'm not really sure exactly what you mean jerry can you explain it to me and jerry said well you know he told me a little bit about Duncan mcdougall and i went out and went out and did the research and jerry said i'd like to see if we can do something similar and i said jerry I'm not killing anyone. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm not really. Uh, this is not my my area. And he said, "No, no, no." He said, "Up in uh, Virginia, it was just a few a few hours from here. It's a place called the Monroe Institute. The Monroe, Monroe Institute is famous for training people to go into states of consciousness, which allow them to leave their body." and then return again. There's a man named Bob Monroe, who back in the 1960s through the, uh, about the 90s, uh, did a lot of experimentation on his own related to out-of-body experiences and found training methods to help other people as well. And so Jerry said, why don't we get some of those people to come down and see if when they leave their body, if we can measure a difference in their weight? I thought, well, okay, that's possible. It just so happened that I had these special scales that were in the Rhine Research Center in our labs that um, hadn't been used in a number of years. They came from a man named Lou Hollander. In 1990s, Lou Hollander wanted had heard about Duncan McDougall and wanted to replicate the experiment, but instead of doing it with people, <laughs> Lou Hollander was going to do it with animals. He had animals that were destined for slaughter and he euthanized them under um, working with a a veterinarian. He euthanized them and used these special scales to weigh whether they were um, whether they lost weight at the time of death. Well, Lou's work when he started to started to study, he could since he was working with animals, he could take a lot more precautions than he than we than uh, Duncan McDougall was able to with people. He was able to maintain fluids and anything related to the animals at the time that they were euthanized. What Lou Hollander found was there was a change in weight at the time of death, also, but contrary to what Duncan McDougall found, Lou Hollander found that the animals actually gained weight at the time of their death. And I believe it was uh, about uh, anywhere from from about, again, about 20 to uh, about 45 grams that were different. That was a difference here. And that's 45 grams, there's 28 grams in an ounce. So that's getting close to two ounces. It's more than an ounce that they gained in weight these would have been
1: larger animals, so not like mice suddenly gaining two ounces.
2: That's very true. Good point. Yeah, they were goats and they were sheep. And so it wasn't a large percentage of their weight. But still, it was a few ounces that some of them were gaining at the time of their death, which is really odd because it was exactly opposite what Duncan McDougall had found. Duncan McDougall found that they lost weight and Lou Hollander found that they gained weight. And so uh, my question was, well, why would they gain weight? There's this whole idea that um, people that people are uh, able to, uh, there's dead weight. We always hear about dead weight, that when uh, something is dead, it's kind of this heavier than whenever it's alive. And the question, why would that be? Well, if there is a soul that's in these animals, would it have a buoyancy factor? Might it be lighter than air? You often hear about uh, people when they have near-death experiences that they float towards the ceiling and they're viewing things from above. Maybe that's because, these are the theories, right? Maybe that's because their soul is lighter than air and it floats to the top, floats above, and they're viewing things from above. You don't really hear people floating down and viewing from below. So the question then became, okay, if if these animals are gaining weight, Will the same thing happen with people? Well, at the Rhine, we had Lou Hollander's scales, the exact scales that he had used in his experiment. I had his computer. I had the same software system. And what Jerry recommended to me, Jerry Konzer recommended, is why don't you take those scales and set them up? We'll bring some people from Monroe Institute down and do a collaborative project. When they have some people who will leave their body and we'll see if there's a change in weight when they leave their body. So that's where this whole project started. And how accurate were these scales? When, we, when I had them set up in the lab, because I had to do some, I had to rig them a little bit to get them all working. Um, they, I could uh, manage about uh, 100 kilograms and they would vary five grams for 100 kilograms. That's a really, really accurate scale. It was so uh, so accurate that if I took, I had a nickel, a nickel weighed five grams. <laughs> I, me- I measured this and I put a whole stack of nickels on and I would take them off and then I would have the scale all set up and have the platform set up and throw a nickel on it. And I could see the weight change five grams when that happened. So it was extremely accurate and extreme, and, and it would vary a very small amount even with the larger weight that was on the scale.
1: Now, in um, in out of body experience studies, there's a debate about whether something actually leaves the body during an out of body experience, or whether it's more just a shift in perspective, kind of like remote viewing. Uh-huh. Um, when you ran the experiment, so you bring down these um, these out of body experiencers from the Monroe Institute, and you you put them on the scale. They have their out of body experiences. What results did you get?
2: Well, the, the the variance that I saw was, you know, when I first heard about this, my first thought is, I don't think I'm going to get anything from this. Because just for the reason you mentioned, some people, when they have these experiences, it's more like a shift in perspective. Not that there's something leaving their bodies. But I asked the director of Monroe at the time, I asked her, can you send me people who really feel like they are leaving their body?" and traveling to a different location. So I, I asked for that because, well, that's what we were testing for, right? We were testing to see if something left the body, if we could measure it. And so I asked for that specific uh, factor whenever they came down. And so they did send down three people. But my thought was, you know, just weighing people, and I'm going to have all the, have these people travel all the way down to Durham from Monroe Institute, and I'm going to have them stay for a few days. We're going to do a number of experiments. I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time. There's a lot of, lot of going on here. So let's add some things to this. Rather than just weighing them whenever they say they go out of body, let's also set up a place down the hall where we can hide an object in another room and ask them to go down the hallway and look in this room, see the object, and then tell me what it is when they come back. So it would be a verification that possibly they were able to get out of their body. But I didn't want to stop there. So I also set up a random number generator. There is this uh, global consciousness project where they use random number generators around the world, and they find that when people focus, a number of people focus on the same events, it changes the generator from being random. It makes it less random.
1: We're going to have a future episode of Mysterious World about those. Yes.
2: Oh, wonderful. Um, so I'm, I won't go into detail about them, but I can say that why my that's a global effect. I was looking to see if there was a local effect that would occur around these random number generators. Not when people were trying to make them change but just if there was an unconscious effect that it would occur when people left their body and when, it, when they were having these out of body experiences, I didn't know, but it was a pilot study and I thought, well, let's try it and let's see if we can fi- see any variation that correlated with their experience. But I, but I have one more thing in my lab. We also have something called a uh, bioenergy lab where we measure ultraviolet light emissions from people. Very, very low levels of ultraviolet light. So I wanted to see if when people went out of their body, if I would see any changes in the ultraviolet light that was coming from their body or that was in the room. So I took this whole setup where i essentially set up the scales, put a platform on it with some um, pads on it to make it like a bed. Because a lot of people, when they do out-of-body work, they are like laying in their bed, and they're trying—they're trying to leave their body, and so they want to be in a comfortable environment. So I set up like a bed in this in this um, lab, so I can measure it. But I picked the whole mechanism up and moved it into my dark room, where I have my bioenergy lab, and I had them do their out-of-body in there as well. So I was measuring four different factors: one being their weight, because we had scales. Another, could they get the um, the target? that was down the hallway to validate that they actually had an out-of-body experience. A third was, was there any change in the random number generator, which would show that there might be some sort of unconscious activity that might be affecting the environment. And the fourth was, when they left their body, was I seeing any changes in light, which is a form of energy? Was I seeing any additional energy in the room? So with those four factors, I felt like, we could do a pretty solid experiment and it'd be worth the time to bring these people down and do it.
1: And what did you find?
2: Oh, well, at three people, it was a pilot study. And the first person who came down, we had her uh, do her, uh, do her session in the lab. Two of the people who came down were uh, doing it while they were sleeping at night. Essentially they would go to sleep and then they would, in the middle of the night, wake themselves up. And then when they went back to sleep, they would bring themselves into the out-of-body state and leave their body while they were, this is their description, they would leave their body while they were sleeping. And so I had them, had them uh, move into the lab whenever they were sleeping at night and uh, check, check their readings all night long while, while they were sleeping. The third person did it just spontaneously. She would come and she would um, go and say, OK, I'm out of body. I'm going out of body now. OK, I'm back. OK, I'm out of body. I'm, I'm back. She could do it while she was conscious and awake and didn't have this added uh, complication. Well, the first thing I wanted to know is, can I get the target? The targets, I, I was I was blind to it. All the people who were involved in the study were blind to it. I had a, an independent researcher choose out of a box of targets. We had four, we had five different targets. I had them choose out of a box of targets, one of them, and put it in the room. And then after the session was over, I'd have them bring all the targets and put them, they were just little objects, have them lay out on a table and I'd have the participant choose which one. Out of those three, two of them hit the target, was no hesitation, it's this one, it's this. They, could, they didn't describe it to me beforehand, but as soon as they saw the uh, objects, they picked it. The third one, we had a problem in a, a methodology, so we weren't able to determine whether they got the target or not. But two out of three nailed it right on. That was, in, in, that was in, an indication that something was happening with them. The weight changes. I saw changes in weight. I saw changes in random numbers. And I saw light changes in all three sessions. It was really interesting. In one session, I saw changes in all three at the same time simultaneously, which was really, I mean, I was, that was quite quite an uh, unexpected result. Because <laughs> as I said, when I was bringing them down, I didn't expect to find anything. I was just like, okay, I'll try this. Let's see. Um, because I wasn't sure they were actually leaving their bodies. They were the experience they had that it was actually happening. What I found, similar to Lou Hollander, is that people gained weight when they said that they were leaving their body. So, is there a buoyancy factor to this soul, to the spirit, whatever it is that they felt left their body, that when it left, the body became slightly heavier? Now, Lou Hollander had found it was about, um, 20 to, to 40, 40 some grams. I actually saw much larger changes. I saw changes that were closer to uh, a uh, an ounce and a half of changes that were coming from, from this at the time that they were actually experiencing out of body. It was a big change that I was seeing. And it was a gain in weight. I saw, I could see it, um, I'd, I'd see the weight as they, were, as they were sleeping or as they were doing this experiment, it would stabilize for a period of time for a number of minutes, and then it would quickly raise, rise, and they'd get much, much heavier. And I could see that continue on for 12, 15 minutes, and then it would, just as quickly as it went up, drop back down and come back to pretty much the same weight that it was before. You wouldn't expect anyone Laying on a scale, a bed on a scale, you wouldn't expect them to change weight at all. (laughs) You might expect them from their breathing, from movements, you might see different things. And I tested all those things. That was my my control conditions, was having them do some meditations and doing some deep breathing, having them uh, just lay there and move around in different ways. And I saw the effects of those uh, things on the scale. Nothing like the results I got whenever they actually said they were leaving their body. It was very different.
1: So um, the idea of buoyancy of there being, and these also were not full deaths. This is just an out-of-body experience. So you might've seen even bigger effects if someone (laughs) actually died, but that's not the subjects you were using.
2: That's, and that's not the study. I I, I told Jerry, I'm not killing anyone. I I maintained that throughout the study. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, but so the idea of buoyancy is one possible explanation here. Another one that occurs to me is a variation on the proposal that people in general and or even organisms in general may have psi functioning as part of their ordinary experiences. And it it occurs to me that one way that could manifest would be just like we use our muscles To navigate our environment and hold ourselves up and assume postures, we might be doing something similar just as an assist with psychokinesis. And organisms, including humans, might make themselves a little bit lighter than the the raw matter in their bodies as they navigate or as they assume certain postures. And the removal of a soul or the change in focus, even if nothing's leaving the body, the change in focus could affect that psychokinetic lightning in a way that makes you appear heavier on a scale. What would you think of that proposal?
2: Well, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, we we have no idea what it might be causing this effect. So it's okay for us to look and explore different things. And some of the things I did, for example, in the interest of science, I took a nap on this scale in the middle of the day to see if when I slept, if there was any variation and no changes. I spent a lot of time on the scale trying to see if I could produce the variations to test out the scales to see if, it, if there was anything. And I wasn't able to reproduce the same sort of thing. Now, I wasn't going out of body myself. That wasn't my goal here. And, um, you know, that's not one of the things I practice a great deal. Um, so it wasn't, I wasn't. beyond that, though, could there be some sort of PK effect? Well, of course, Anytime we're dealing with electronic instruments, any time. We're always at risk of saying there is a PK effect occurring either from the participant or from the experimenter. It may not be that the instrument is actually measuring a change in the environment, but the readings from the instrument might be affected by PK. So there's always a variation possibility.
1: Now, this was a pilot study, which is a study done typically in preparation for a larger scale study. Have you published the results of this or have you done a follow up study?
2: So there's I I have not published and there's two reasons I haven't published. Um, First of all, because it was a pilot study, there were only three participants. It wasn't sufficient to um, to give me the confidence that the effect was real. Uh, The other thing is the scales we use were Lou Hollander scales the exact scales that he had, he saw a weight gain when these animals were on the scale. My question was, is there an artifact in the scale that's causing this to occur? And so before I could be confident in the results, because, you know, this is one of the things when we're working in parapsychology, we have to be extra aware of any sort of criticisms or skeptical responses we might get to our results. I am very, I told you, I wasn't expecting to get anything. I was very skeptical of the, of the results. And in fact, when the, I had a co-researcher who was working with these people in the middle of the night while I went home and slept. And when I came back in the morning one day, he said, there's something wrong with the scale after one session, he said, there's something wrong. I said, what's wrong? He said, the equipment's just not working right. And he showed me the output, and the output was just what I described you, constant and all of a sudden an increase that stayed and then a decrease. And I said, that's not a mistake. That's exactly what we're looking for. This is how so many things happen in science is that we just run into these unusual circumstances. It's unexpected. And that's what brings us interest. But because it was Lou Hollander scales, I didn't feel that we could publish without trying it with a different set of equipment. When I started looking into, hey, can I get more modern Mettler Toledo scales that will weigh 100 100, uh, kilograms and only vary at 5 grams, they are – Tens and tens of thousands of dollars, <laughs> and we don't have the grants, and we don't have the facility to run that study uh, w- that way. Um, I've tried to raise some funds for it, but it was not uh, available to us. So I haven't been able to get new scales. I even looked into different uh, ways to build our own scales. My brother is an engineer, and he talked to me about different ways that they measure stresses on bridges and and different structures. Um, and there's a way you can do it, but again. It takes a great deal of engineering expertise and um, money to do this. (laughs) So that's what's held me back from moving on and replicating this and verifying these results. And I don't feel comfortable publishing them until we have really firm results.
1: Okay. Well, here's hoping funding comes through at some point and you're able to do that follow up.
2: (laughs) Always hoping for that. Yes.
1: Anything else we should know about this case?
2: Well, you know, besides the fact that uh, it was. It was really fun to do. It was a fun fun study, and it was a nice way to collaborate between institutions. This is one of the things we often look for in parapsychology. We have different groups that are specialized in different areas at the Monroe Institute. they don't have a specialty in doing really formal research studies, and yet they have they're f- focused on having helping people to have experiences, trying to combine. The people who are having the experiences with the research facilities is one of the ways we can move forward in this field.
1: Where can people learn more about your work? And is there anything you'd like to plug?
2: Well, I work at the Ryan Research Center, which is Ryan.org. It's uh, and I'm hoping you'll put that little thing underneath yeah. me whenever I say that. <laughs> we'll
1: have we'll have it in the show notes and it's rhine.org dot org for people who are listening to the to the audio version of the podcast.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Jimmy and um so there's uh on on the website there's links to our research area, and you can go and you can learn more about some of the other research projects we're doing as well this one this project in particular hasn't been published, and you're not not going to find much about it on the website, so this is kind of a little exclusive you have here, Jimmy, about this yeah topic. we haven't talked about it in a in a lot of different forums. Um, but you know, go to the Ryan website, and you can learn all about the different educational opportunities we have as well.
1: Sounds great! Thank you so much for being with us, John G. Kruth. Thanks, Jimmy. And so that's the most recent research that I'm aware of. Now we can go into analysis mode and look at the results from the perspectives of faith and reason.
0: And as always, before we do that, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tim H., Samantha K., E.C. Kristen R. and Hiram G. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at Starquest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church, by Greg and Jennifer Willets. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by... Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. So let's go back to McDougal's 1907 results and test them from the reason perspective. If nobody's tried replicating them with humans, and if they don't like the results he got, have they been able to propose an alternative naturalistic explanation for them?
1: The biggest criticism, or certainly one of the biggest criticisms I've seen of the experiments, is that McDougall had a really small sample size. He tested only six people, and he considered only four of the results reliable. It's understandable that he was only able to run the test a few times, given how difficult it could be to get dying people to agree to it, especially given that he was looking for people who were dying of diseases that wouldn't let them move around much. But still, this is a really small sample size. However, I don't think that it's necessarily the sample size itself that's the major problem. In a lot of tests, if you you want a big sample size because you need to average out the different effects that a thing may have, for example, if you're testing a drug, you may want to test it on a large number of people because a single drug can affect different people in different ways, and you need to find its average effect. But dying kind of affects everyone the same way. So if you get an accurate measurement of you know, even one person suddenly losing weight upon dying and you can't identify the reason naturalistically, I mean, that's a significant result. Certainly, a larger sample size would add much more confidence to, to the results. But it seems to me that the reason you want more subjects to be studied is not just that death affects people differently, but because you may not get an accurate reading in a given case. So you want multiple measures taken and by different researchers using a different equip using different equipment. What you really want is not just a larger sample size from one researcher, but replication by different researchers. It's not the smallness of the sample size so much as the replication. That's the most important issue to my mind. And Dr. McDougall acknowledged that the experiment needed to be rerun many times in order to draw firm conclusions. It's not his fault that others haven't attempted replication with humans.
0: Are there other criticisms, besides small sample size, that people have made of the method by which the experiment was carried out? Two criticisms that I'm aware of on the more methodological side
1: are that McDougall selectively reported his results and that he committed fraud. When it comes to the selective reporting argument, this was made by Australian science communicator, Dr. Carl Krizelnicki. He argues that McDougall had only one case, patient one, whose results agreed with the hypothesis that the person would lose weight upon death. Dr. Carl, as he is known, then accuses McDougall of selectively reporting his results. But this criticism is flatly untrue. Selective reporting means not fully or accurately reporting your findings, and McDougall did not do that. He reported the results of all six of his trials on humans and described them in significant detail. Furthermore, all six of the results indicated weight loss upon death, even the two cases that McDougall thought should not be relied upon. So Dr. Carl is just wrong on both counts, and frankly, I'm baffled that he would make this claim. McDougall did not selectively report his results. He reported all of them. And McDougall did not have only one that would agree with the hypothesis. All six of them did. Now, frankly, I would expect more even from a science communicator like Dr. Carl. What about the charge of fraud that McDougall faked his results? One always has to be aware of the possibility of fraud because it does happen in the scientific world and more than a lot of people think. But you can't simply dismiss a result you don't like by saying, oh, it must have been fraud. You need evidence to support the allegation of fraud. You can't just smear researchers whose findings you disapprove of by accusing them of faking their results. And despite looking for it, I haven't been able to find anyone providing evidence that any fraud was committed in this case. And don't forget, Twining got similar results. He consistently saw weight loss if he didn't seal the mice in a glass tube, so some kind of weight loss associated with death has been confirmed by others. That's evidence against the idea that McDougall committed fraud because the same basic result has been replicated. Though, of course, we'll also need to discuss the weight gain that was seen by Lou Hollander and John Cruth in their
0: experiments. Sticking with McDougal for a moment, let's look at responses that don't deal with the methodology and instead try to provide a naturalistic explanation of the weight loss that McDougal found at the moment of death. What if people said here?
1: There are a number of proposals, including the following. One, the weight loss could have been due to small amounts of perspiration on the skin that then evaporated. Two, the weight loss could have been caused by convection air currents that were affecting the scale. Three, the weight loss was caused by a sudden rise of body temperature, causing additional perspiration that then evaporated. And four, the weight loss was caused by the cessation of heartbeat and breathing rhythm, which had been previously disturbing the scale.
0: Let's look at each of these. What about the idea that there were small amounts of perspiration on the skin that evaporated? This is not credible. A person may have small amounts
1: of perspiration on the skin, but it doesn't suddenly evaporate at the moment of death. It takes time to evaporate. What's more, McDougall's patients would have been covered up by gowns and bedsheets, covers, and so forth. So most of the sweat on their skin would have been absorbed by the bedclothes and remained to be weighed by the scale. There would not have been 10 to 45 grams of sweat released on the skin right at the moment of death. And even if there was, those 10 to 45 grams certainly would not evaporate into the air in an instant. It would take time for that much fluid to evaporate.
0: What about the idea that there were convection air currents affecting the scale? This idea was proposed
1: by Lynn Fisher in his book Weighing the Soul, which we'll have a link to. I actually like his treatment of McDougall a lot, in part because he's sympathetic rather than scornful, and he's trying to think through the problem in an open-minded way. But his convection current proposal didn't make any sense to me when I read it. Fisher proposed that the convection of the air currents was caused by the cooling of the body upon death, resulting in the scale-changing reading, and that didn't make any sense. It's true that the body loses heat after death, a phenomenon known as algor mortis, which is Latin for the coldness of death. But your body doesn't suddenly drop multiple degrees when you die enough to drive air currents to remove 10 to 45 grams from a scale. When a person dies, the wind does not suddenly swirl around the body forcefully because of a sudden loss of body temperature. Instead, algor mortis sets in slowly, and your body temperature gradually decreases over hours, which is how medical examiners can estimate how many hours ago a person at a crime scene died. You don't have a sudden massive loss of heat at the moment of death. So, this theory doesn't explain McDougall's results.
0: What about the opposite claim that there's a sudden rise in temperature that caused notable perspiration that then evaporated? Has anybody proposed that?
1: This was actually one of the first proposals to be made. It was suggested by Dr. Augustus Clark in the pages of the journal American Medicine after McDougall published his results and the two debated it back and forth in the journal for several months. The idea is that when you die, you stop breathing, so your lungs are no longer being cooled by taking in air, and your overall temperature rises temporarily before algor mortis sets in. Clark claimed that this would produce sweating, this rise in temperature since your lungs are no longer being cooled, and that the sweat would then evaporate. Clark even suggested that this was why McDougal got different results with dogs, because dogs don't sweat. Instead, they pant, you know, (laughs) they do that to cool themselves. And obviously, dead dogs don't pant. So when the dogs died, they didn't release any moisture to be evaporated due to a temporary rise in body temperature. But first, Clark was wrong about there being a notable overall rise in body temperature after death. The cessation of the lungs breathing does not contribute very much to the cooling of the body when it's alive, and the body is always discharging heat into the environment by radiating it away through the skin, and that radiation of heat continues at death, and there isn't an overall notable rise in temperature upon death. Further, even if there was and 10 to 45 grams of sweat suddenly appeared on the skin at the moment of death, it wouldn't instantly evaporate into the air. It takes time for sweat to evaporate and a lot of such sweat would have been trapped by the bedclothes and still be impacting the scale. So this argument also doesn't work.
0: Then what about the final argument we're considering that heartbeat and breathing rhythms stop and this results in a change on the scale? It's true that breathing
1: and heartbeat will cause you to bounce up and down slightly when lying in a bed. And it's true that this will cause uh, the bed to bounce up and down very slightly on a scale, introducing noise into the measurement of weight. Then, when the person dies, the breathing and heartbeat stop and the noise goes out of the system. This results in a weight measurement that is in the middle. Higher than the lowest readings, but lower than the highest readings. But based on simulations done by Masayoshi Ishida, this would be responsible for only around 2 grams of difference in the case of humans, not the 10 to 45 grams that McDougall found. We'll have a link to a paper where Ishida goes through all that in great detail, as well as providing replies to the temperature and sweat objections we've looked at, plus a couple more that we won't cover for reasons of time and simplicity.
0: What about the weight gain results that were reported by Lou Hollander and John Kruth? How could those be explained?
1: We'd need to look at some of the same considerations. Uh, John pointed out that uh, one of the reasons he didn't publish was because this was just a pilot study and he only had a sample size of three. Um, we have no indication of fraud or equipment failure in these cases. They also seem to have eliminated things like vibrations and changing positions on the scale. Air currents are not a plausible explanation for that much weight gain, and you're certainly not going to gain weight by evaporation of sweat or, or exhaling moisture. But since both of these results were obtained with the same set of equipment, it needs to be replicated
0: with other gear in order
1: for us to have confidence with the results.
0: Assuming that these results hold up upon replication, what might explain them? In the
1: absence of a naturalistic, purely material explanation, one of the possibilities is the one that John mentioned, the idea that the soul or something that leaves the body during an out-of-body experience has a lighter-than-air buoyancy. That doesn't mean negative mass, it just means lighter than air. So when this thing leaves the body, the body is no longer being buoyed up by it and its weight on the scale increases. Another explanation is the possibility that I mentioned, that organisms use psychokinesis when navigating their environments, and the result is that they use PK to hold themselves up or in place, which slightly reduces their weight in a normal situation. But when they die. Or when something leaves the body, or just when they're directing their psi to another location, it disrupts this PK effect and they appear to get heavier.
0: The McDougall results of weight loss and the Hollander-Kruth result of weight gain point in opposite directions. How could those be squared from the reason perspective? Well, one
1: or the other, or both, uh, findings could be mistaken. That's something we'd need further research and replication to clarify. However, if both findings hold up, there would be ways to reconcile them. As I mentioned, it could be that during normal situations where the organism is alive and not having an out-of-body experience, there is a lightning effect like the one that Hollander and Kruth measured, whether it's due to buoyancy or PK or something else. But then this is offset in organisms like humans at actual death by the loss of something that has a bigger effect than the lightning effect, and so the net weight. Of humans goes down at actual death.
0: Then let's look at the issue from the faith perspective. What can we say about McDougal's findings here? The first thing
1: I'd like to say is that McDougal's overall hypothesis that souls are made of a space-filling substance that is subject to gravity, meaning it that it has mass, is very much out of sync with classic theological views. There isn't time to go into a technical discussion of all the distinctions regarding the soul that are Permitted in Christian and Catholic theology. Maybe we can do that in a future episode. But allow me to point out two teachings that have been infallibly defined that are relevant to our question. The first is that God created two realms, the spiritual realm and the corporeal or bodily realm, and that man shares in both of these realms since he has both a body and a spirit. The second is the idea that the rational soul is the substantial form of the human body. So it integrates the body and makes the body it makes it makes it the body of a specific person. The first of these principles in particular at least creates tension with McDougall's proposal.
0: Why would the idea that man participates in both the spiritual and the bodily realms create tension with McDougall's view? Because by
1: infallibly defining this, the church has infallibly defined that the two realms are different. The spiritual and the bodily are not the same thing. Now, in light of modern science, it's very easy to identify the bodily realm with the realm of, you know, physical matter and physical energy. And that would indicate that whatever the spiritual realm is, it's not or wouldn't seem to be the realm of physical matter and energy, which would suggest that man's spirit is not made of physical matter and energy which, you know, are really the same thing since matter and energy mutually convert. uh, E equals mc squared and all that. But McDougall's view seems to suggest that the soul is made out of physical matter and energy. He says it's a space-filling substance that's subject to gravitation, and if it's subject to gravity, it must have mass. And the only things that we know of that have mass are subatomic particles. And that would suggest that the soul is either made of atoms or the constituent parts of atoms, which would put it in the realm of physical matter and energy. So, there's at least a tension between the Church's view and McDougal's.
0: Are there ways you could try to harmonize these ideas? There are. I can
1: imagine ways to square them. They're rather technical, and they'd take rather a long time to go through, so I won't go into them in detail. However, consider the possibility that spirit and matter are two different manifestations of one underlying thing. In that case, the spiritual realm and the corporeal realm would be two different things, just like the church defined, but also they would be related to each other. And we know they are related to each other because spirits, including angelic spirits and human spirits, are able to affect matter. Despite being pure spirits, angels are psychokinetic, and we see them manipulating matter in the Bible, while human spirits in this life are able to manipulate their material bodies and keep their material bodies alive, so they are related to each other. What this harmonization would do is allow the causal arrow to point the other way so that matter could in some way affect spirits like when you receive optical information through your eyes, which are physical, and that has an impact on your spirit learning things about your body's physical environment. There's more to say here, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because actually this isn't my preferred solution. On theological grounds, I have a really hard time imagining that the soul itself is made out of stuff that has any physical matter and Thus is subject to gravity.
0: Do you have an alternative that would explain McDougal's findings? I do, and to make it clear, let me give you an
1: analogy. Suppose that you're taking a bath. It can be an ordinary bath in water, or it could be a mud bath, or almost any kind of bath you'd like. As you're taking the bath, you're soaking in a tub that's filled with the substance that you're bathing in. But then when you get out of the tub, some of that substance, whether it's drops of water or mud or something else, is going to stick to you and come out of the tub with you. So maybe your soul, on this analogy, is taking a bath in your material body. But then when you die and your soul comes out of your material body, it takes some of that matter with it. So some of the atoms or subatomic particles are stuck to your soul the way water or mud can be stuck to your body. Why would matter be stuck to an immaterial soul? Because we know that the immaterial soul is able to affect the matter in your body. If nothing else, your rational soul is affecting the matter in your brain as part of the rational thought process, as the synapses in your brain Fire or refrain from firing, that physical process is somehow influenced by your rational soul. But your rational soul's influence seems to be mental. So we have mental influence of matter or mind over matter. The name for that is psychokinesis. In addition to other influences your rational soul has on the matter in your body, it's got a psychokinetic grip on some of the particles and atoms in your brain. But we obviously don't normally have robust psychokinetic abilities in this life, so there's a limit to what an ordinary embodied soul can do. By illness or injury, the matter of your body can cease, responding to the soul that's keeping it alive. For example, if someone stabs you in the heart with a butcher knife and you're a normal person, you can't just psychokinetically heal yourself of a massive heart wound. Your body stops responding to your soul's efforts to keep it alive and dies, ejecting your soul in the process. But your rational soul still has that psychokinetic grip on some of the matter in your brain, at least. And what if, as part of its effort to keep the body alive, your rational soul is trying to psychokinetically hang on to that matter in the brain. I mean, after all, that's part of its job, part of what it needs to do. So when your body is so sick or injured that it starts dying and ejecting your soul, the soul is still retaining its grip on some of the matter in your body. And as the soul exits, it pulls that matter along with it and yanks it out of the body. And that could result in a small amount of weight loss at the moment of death. And if the soul is only taking individual atoms or particles with it, you couldn't see this happening. It would only be detectable in in aggregate as a decline on a scale. At least, that's one way I can imagine this happening. I can think of others too, but we'll stick with this one for purposes of our discussion. In any event, I can imagine ways to say that the soul is purely immaterial and still produces a measurable weight loss
0: upon death. Let's take this model and see if it can explain other things that McDougall and others found in their experiments. What about the fact that some of McDougall's subjects lost additional weight a few minutes after death? One of them even seemed to regain a bit momentarily before losing it again. I think that the model I've proposed is consistent
1: with those findings modern medical science recognizes death as a process rather than something that just occurs in a split second. And from a theological perspective, we don't have any reason to challenge that. It's obvious that, or seems obvious, that the dying process is just that. It's a process. In some cases, that process may happen very rapidly, but not instantaneously. And part of that process involves a struggle to stay alive with your body and spirit trying to rally to put things back together and reestablish normal function. So in the case of some of McDougall's subjects, there may have been a relatively clean death with a single moment of weight loss, while in other cases, the process took longer to play out with the rational soul holding on to more matter, resulting in an initial weight loss as when the soul started to separate, and then a second greater weight loss when it finally separated. And perhaps in one case, the soul started to come loose, producing a material weight loss. Then it tried to reintegrate, restoring some of that mass, only to fail in the end, resulting in that weight going away again. At least those are possibilities for what could be happening.
0: What about the results that McDougall and others got with animals? The animals in question were dogs,
1: mice, sheep, and goat. And the results were different, so we'll need to look at them individually. Before we do that, though, I want to point out that the animals don't have souls view is not the common understanding. In Catholic theology, it's understood that every life form has a soul because it's the soul that's keeping your, the life form's body alive. So, every living thing has a soul, but souls have different properties and abilities. Vegetative souls let organisms live and grow and reproduce. Sensitive souls let organisms sense and feel and engage in primitive forms of reasoning. And rational souls let them have the gift of human-level reasoning. A common opinion is that only rational souls survive death, but that's not church teaching. It's only a theological opinion, and so it's only as good as the arguments people put forward for it. And in episode 203 on Animal Afterlife, I looked at those arguments and concluded that they weren't persuasive.
0: In light of that, what would you make of McDougal's results with the dogs?
1: He didn't find any weight loss for them, and this could be explained in more than one way. First, his scale wasn't sensitive enough to detect weights of less than two-tenths of an ounce, or 5.6 grams. So maybe dogs don't have souls that can survive death, and so it doesn't take any matter out of the body. Or maybe they have a weaker soul that doesn't have as tight a grip on some of the matter in their bodies. And of course, they have smaller bodies than humans. So maybe when a dog dies, it takes out less than the
0: 5.6
1: grams that McDougall could measure.
0: How about the mice that Twining tested? He used a more sensitive scale, and for the mice he had in the open air, he saw losses of between 1 and 4 grams, though he didn't see anything if he put the mouse in a sealed glass tube. The weight loss he saw in the open air mice could be due
1: to their souls coming out of their bodies, whether their souls went on to survive or not. And in the case of putting one in a sealed glass tube, the matter may well have been pulled out of the body. It just remained in the tube and so the weight reading didn't
0: change. Lastly, we have the sheep and the goat that Hollander tested. What about these? Hollander's measuring system was able to detect shifts of
1: five grams or more, roughly equivalent to McDougal's. He did not find any weight drop in the three lambs he tested or the one goat. As a result, his findings for these animals were equivalent to McDougal's findings on the dog's. And we've already seen how the model I've proposed could explain those. When it came to the seven adult sheep he tested, he did see weight fluctuations, but of an unexpected kind. They temporarily gained weight, only to lose it again quickly.
0: Can you see ways for the proposed model to explain this? Yes.
1: uh, The souls of different organisms have different properties, which is why the organisms are different. The soul of a dog, you know, has different properties than the soul of a sheep, which has different properties than the soul of a human. Maybe one of the properties of a sheep's soul is that as part of their rallying process, as they're trying to reintegrate with the body, they pull in additional matter, but that matter leaves when the soul fails to reintegrate. Or, as a four-footed creature that likes to be planted firmly on the ground, Maybe their souls try to stabilize themselves by psychokinetically pushing down. Um, you know, it's kind of a panic reaction. I want to be planted on the ground, so they psychokinetically push down when they're in the distress of dying, and that causes a momentary weight gain. But then, when they the rally fails and they do die, that psychokinetic effect evaporates. Now, Hollander's results are so unexpected that if They were all we'd have. I would suspect it was something else that was the true explanation, perhaps a flaw in the measuring uh, system or the particular measurements that were taken by Hollander. But John Cruz's experiment also pointed to weight gain in the case of human out of body experiences. It was made with the same equipment, so maybe it was a mechanical problem in both cases. However, it's hard for me to think of what kind of mechanical problem would produce what they saw that was correlated either with death or an out-of-body experience. I mean, if there's a flaw in the equipment, why is it correlated with those two things? So it could be that the temporary weight gain was real, and this might be borne out in future research. Now, given the very small number of experiments that have been conducted and the small sample sizes, it could be that all of the experiments on humans, dogs, mice, sheep, and the goat were all flawed and unreliable. As McDougall said, the experiments needed to be run many more times before firm conclusions could be drawn, and they haven't been. We're dealing only with a handful of experiments by a handful of researchers, and so we shouldn't put a lot of weight in them no pun intended. We shouldn't dismiss them out of hand, but neither should we rush to embrace them or assume the results are accurate. And as I said, it could turn out that both McDougall's observed weight loss and Hollander and Kruth's observed weight gain could be real. There are mechanisms that would explain temporary weight gain, and these might be offset in the case of actual human deaths, by an even greater effect, such as your soul psychokinetically pulling matter out of your body as part of the separation that occurs at death.
0: So, Jimmy, what's your bottom
1: line on weighing the soul? Duncan McDougall deserves credit for pioneering this line of research. On theological grounds, I think he's wrong about the soul itself being subject to gravity, but it may be possible to detect the departure of the soul at death through its indirect effects, like on the model I've proposed. Despite the attempts that have been made to discredit his study and dismiss it as unscientific, none of the really hold up. Nobody to date has produced a convincing, alternative, purely natural explanation for the results he got. And until a convincing alternative is proposed, his results should be considered. On the other hand, we are dealing with a small amount of data that could be wrong. So before anybody can say anything confident in this area, we need a lot more research, and that research has yet to be done. As a result, the surprising results McDougall and others have gotten should be considered with open-minded interest, but not with firm belief or firm disbelief. Anything else you want to say before we close? Yes, I want to say a special thank you to John Kruth of the Rhine Research Center for coming on the show today and sharing the results he found with us. That really added a significant dimension to the show as his findings were in the same direction as Hollander's. Both the observed weight loss and the observed weight gain are really fascinating, surprising findings. So told you this one was
0: going to be strange. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners?
1: We'll have a link to Lynn Fisher's book, Weighing the Soul, Scientific Discovery from the Brilliant to the Bizarre. We'll also have links to Jason Fung's books, The Diabetes Code, The Obesity Code, and The Complete Guide to Fasting. Um, I happened to write, a a while ago, I took a a course from the Ryan uh, Education Center on skepticism and parapsychology. And our term paper assignment was to pick a um, scientific paper and analyze it from a a critical perspective. And I happened to choose, um, I happened to choose the original McDougall study. So we'll have a link to my term paper, which got an A, um, analyzing it from just the reason perspective. We'll also have a link to Wikipedia's dismissive 21 grams experiment article, also McDougall's original paper, as well as a version of his paper with correspondence that accompanied it, Ishida's ref- refutation of refutations, uh, a video on how balance scales work the L.A. Herald's uh, article on Twining's replication, Hollander's attempting replication, Ishida's critique of Hollander's results, also a link to the Ryan Research Center, ryanonline.org, and also a link to Jason Fung's uh, YouTube video channel.
0: Excellent. So uh, that'll do it for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about weighing the solar, other ways of scientifically detecting it. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis
1: Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. You can hire them if you have a need for video and animation work. Also, I suggest that all listeners check out uh, what they do at my channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Akin, where we have the video version of the podcast as well as other videos I do. And I am trying to grow my channel. We're trying to get to 40,000 subscribers at the moment, so I'd really appreciate it if you would take the time to click the subscribe button and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the others I do. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to have another visit by John Kruth of the Ryan Research Center. And he's going to be telling us about a poltergeist case that he investigated. A little boy was at the center of the case, and he seems to have had an effect on all sorts of electronic devices, the kind which are so common in our 21st century lives. So we're going to be telling you the story of the 21st century
0: poltergeist. Looking forward to that. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm 259. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fear Vento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest network show, Raising the Bets. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com bets. That's B-E-T-T-S.